0: This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and what you need to know to keep yourself and your family safe and healthy in this increasingly toxic world. Welcome back. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a remarkable new document that is making its way around the world regarding children and technology. It's an international document, and it's gaining support from medical doctors, sociologists, epidemiologists, lawyers, and other professionals from around the globe. It's going to be presented at the United Nations on World Children's Day in a few weeks. You might even want to sign the declaration yourself. That story and Patty with the week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Great Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty, so what happened this week in environmental news?
1: Well, this first one is what we've been talking about a bit already on this show, and that's how you can't really recycle plastic. Yeah. And this was written by Huang Zhang and was published in Environmental Health News. The title is, New Report Calls Chemical Recycling a Dangerous Deception for Solving Plastic Pollution. Hmm. So according to a new report by nonprofit environmental advocacy groups Beyond Plastics and the International Pollutants Elimination Network, also known as IPEN, chemical recycling, an umbrella term used to describe processes that break plastic waste down into molecular building blocks with high heat or chemicals and convert them into new products, will not help reduce plastic pollution, but rather exacerbate environmental problems. The report comes just weeks before a meeting of the U.N. Environment Program is scheduled to take place in Nairobi, where officials from countries worldwide will convene for a third round of negotiations to develop an international legally binding treaty to curb plastic pollution. According to the U.N. program, less than 10 percent of the 7 billion tons of plastic waste humans around the world have generated has been recycled less than 10 percent i thought it was a different no, number that's that. that's the worldwide number okay a 2022 report from beyond plastics found that u.s re-plastic recycling rates is even lower between five and six percent
0: so we don't do as well as the rest of the world when it comes to that's recycling correct. terrific
1: okay this is the perfect report for delegates to read on the plane says judith ank president of the anti-plastics advocacy group beyond plastics that co-developed the report Quote, currently the draft of the treaty does not allow for chemical recycling, but we know that the plastics and chemical industry is working hard to change that.
0: Yeah, they're going to be at the convention. They're going to be at that meeting. They're going to be getting in there and trying to change things.
1: Yeah, like other groups around the world. Let's talk about plastic recycling. All right. And the report claimed that chemical recycling is dangerous and dirty, emitting toxic waste back into the environment. According to the analysis, typical emissions from pyrolysis, which is burning of the plastic, one of the most prevalent methods used in chemical recycling that involves breaking plastics down with high heat include carcinogenic, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, volatile organic compounds, chlorinated and brominated dioxins, furans, and acid gases. PER and polyfluoroalkyl substances, also known as PFAS, may also be a contaminant of concern in chemical recycling output, but little information is available on the subject the report pointed out. So
0: in plain English, it's all kinds of things that cause cancer and other serious health problems.
1: Absolutely. An analysis of the five-mile radius around 11 chemical recycling plants here in the U.S. using the EPA's Environmental Justice Screening and Mapping Tool showed that eight of the plants are located in areas with lower-income communities, while seven have higher-than-average concentrations of people of color than the rest of the state and country, the report noted.
0: Surprise, surprise. They put them in places where people don't have the... The money and the organizational, you know, or with all to takes fight them.
1: It takes an unbelievable amount of energy and you know just time, time involved. To fight these
0: things. And yeah. this
1: is what's happening. Meanwhile, within the U.S., there's been a significant push politically from the petrochemical industry to promote and deregulate, deregulate chemical recycling on the state level. This is what's happening all over the country, including right here. In new york but patty
0: state. they've got these ads where the, the happy family comes out with their with all their plastic and they dump stuff. it all into they the dump pen. it in this nice blue barrel and then they, they and they skip they, back to the house, they skip as back to the house like
1: they've done their job yeah, they're saving the planet everything
0: is great now we've recycled our plastic we can go back to our life and you know we're done right
1: right well we have right now waiting in new york state waiting in line right a piece of legislation that will be the most protective piece of legislation in the country as far as what we do with plastic waste. And it's really about reduction, plastic yeah. reduction. Yeah.
0: That's the only solution. Right. I mean,
1: this is a great organization. I mean, I happen to be on the board of this organization, this Beyond is... Plastics, but they are doing incredible work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: they're really doing incredible work. You should go look at their website, beyondplastics.org.
0: Okay, cool. What else is happening in the world?
1: Well, how about this one? If the title is PFAS chemicals on your baby's diapers. Oh, great. Yeah. So there's nothing more important than making sure that our children, especially our babies, are safe. And some new testing from this great new group, Momovation, has identified yet another possible threat. And it's in the diapers we put on our youngest children.
0: I was just going to say, Momovation is doing such great work also. Yeah. This
1: was also published in Environmental Health News. So partnering with Environmental Health News, Momovation, the environmental wellness blog had 65 diapers and similar accessories from 40 different brands tested by an EPA-certified lab and found levels of organic fluorine ranging from 10 parts per million to 323 parts per million in 15 of the products tested. This doesn't sound like much, right? No. Terrence Collins, director of the Institute for Green Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University told Momovation, quote, the EPA has set new concentration lifetime limits for the most toxic PFAS compounds in water that are so low that they are currently impossible to detect. We absolutely don't want babies exposed to products containing 10 parts per million of extractable organic fluorine, which is massive Compared to the new water standards, isn't, yeah, isn't
0: that interesting? Ten parts per million sounds like nothing, but yeah, 10 it sounds parts like nothing. Millions. No, they're way, they're, way over the they're limit. They're
1: trying to, they're trying to look at this particular class of chemicals in parts per quadrillion. That's how toxic they are. It's unbelievable, unbelievable. And you know, PFOS has been linked to health effects, like you know, like reduced immune system function, developmental learning problems in infants and children, cancers, lowered fertility, endocrine disruption you know, as well as a slew of other of other human health impacts. It's it's frightening.
0: We know that these chemicals <laughs> cause these problems, and yet we continue to manufacture them. Oh, yeah. They're manufacturing them today.
1: To, as we speak. The report builds Environmental Health News and Momovation's growing library of consumer products tested for evidence of PFAS, including contact lenses, listen out there, Pasta and tomato sauces, sports bras, tampons, dental floss, electrolytes, butter wrappers, and fast food packaging butter wrappers. Yeah,
0: I know. Right. We, we, we went through this. We, we had went this, through this. We had this news article on a, a few months ago talking about right. the, the wrappers in butter containing PFAS. That's
1: right. Linda Burnbaum, friend of ours, scientist emeritus and former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and National Toxicology Program and scholar in residence at Duke University, told Momovation, quote, this is something that needs to be addressed immediately by the diaper industry. PFAS is not the type of chemical class that we can ignore around small infants. They accumulate inside the body and are close to impossible to get rid of. We already know that exposure to these chemicals can cause problems in pregnant women, but the effects on babies at this young age are mostly unknown. Yeah,
0: so an early life exposure. I mean, your baby is, you know, brand new and you're putting these chemicals right, which on will, the baby. which will
1: be in their bodies for their lifetime. So while the bad news is that any diapers had evidence of PFAS at all, the good news is that 77% of the products tested showed no sign of the chemicals. Brands tested that were completely clean include Healthy Nest Ultra Organic Soft Diapers, Eco Boom Bamboo Diapers, and Seventh Generation Diapers for Sensitive Skin. All three products that I'm sure are not available in neighborhood supermarkets, especially in disadvantaged communities. Yeah. You know, almost every issue has an environmental justice component to it, Yeah, and this is no exception. Well,
0: one thing you certainly could do is look on the the package of diapers and call the number and say get the PFAS out of these diapers or we won't buy them anymore. And anybody can do that, anybody with a phone can call up and complain, and that's what they respond to.
1: But who's getting this information?
0: Well, everybody that listens to this program by the way, tell your friends about Green Street News, <laughs> and it yeah. is, the, it, I admit, it's the bad news show, but you know what, it's important information for everybody to know, especially if you have a baby. This is information you would want to have. So
1: It's the good news about bad news, a or good? it's the bad news about good news. <laughs>
0: All right, Patty, what else you got?
1: So I have a press release here entitled Doctors, Lawyers and Scientists Join Together in International Children's Declaration for the Digital Age. Three fundamental rights of children are affirmed regarding digital technology. An international group of leading lawyers, physicians, physicists, epidemiologists, and other children's health experts have announced their support for a new international declaration intended to raise public awareness of three fundamental rights of children, which are not adequately being protected. One, the right to be free from addictive platforms and apps. Two, the right to be free from hazardous radiation from wireless devices. And three, the right to be free from commercial exploitation of private information. The International Declaration on the Human Rights of Children in the Digital Age builds on the 1959 United Nations Declaration on the Rights of the Child and encourages decision makers at all levels of government and education to take immediate steps to safeguard children from potential harm. The declaration is being promoted by two nonprofit organizations, the Broadband International Legal Action Network of California and Americans for Responsible Technology, based here in New York.
0: That's 64 years ago that UN Declaration, the the Rights of the Child came out. Right. So and about th- time it, we updated
1: this. Absolutely, absolutely. Quote the existence of the legal rights of children is well recognized, but not adequately or uniformly enforced, especially when those rights conflict with powerful commercial interests, says Julian Gresser, Chairman of the Broadband International Legal Action Network, or BBI and one of the declaration's authors. He continues the legal duty to protect children and enforce these rights on their behalf is the obligation of all adults particularly parents, legal guardians, and others in positions of authority. This protection of children in the digital age is a basic legal principle that we believe will increasingly be recognized as a part of international customary law that can be recognized and implemented by every country on earth, end quote.
0: Yeah, this is really, this is an interesting document. And full disclosure, we did play a role in helping to create this document and to promote it it's on the web at www.thechildrensdeclaration.org and later in this program you're going to hear from julian gresser himself who uh, is one of the primary authors of this. So we're very excited about this declaration. We encourage everyone listening to this program to go to the website, sign the declaration, put your name out there, and join the many thousands of people who are concerned about screen time addiction, they're concerned about radiation from these devices, and they're concerned about you know, the exploitation of children, the commercial exploitation of children's data, marketing to children, and so on, which is all data which should remain private, of course. Um, so this is you know, a, it's and, a big deal.
1: You know, and in addition, if you think about the way our children are just totally immersed in technology today, look at what they're not doing. That's yeah. what I worry about. Look at what they're not doing. They're not being part of the world. They're not, you know, spending enough time in nature. They're not reading books that they can actually put a bookmark in and you know, read you know, at night. They're just spending all their time in front of these screens, which have biological effects on their bodies.
0: Yeah. Anyway, all right, great. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. this is a very different world than the one that existed just a generation ago. In the past 20 years, our lives have been transformed by amazing advances in technology, and none has been more life-changing than our ability to communicate with each other all the time, everywhere we go.
1: The cell phone has become such an integral part of our lives that it's hard now to walk down the street and find someone who is not either talking on their phone, taking a selfie, or checking their social media for the latest post. People wake up in the morning and the first thing they do is reach for their phone. We use our phones to pay for groceries, parking spaces, and our morning latte. We get our news delivered into our phones along with text messages and emails. And our kids are watching and learning.
0: Most tweens and teens now have powerful communication devices in their hands, their pockets, or their backpacks, so they can be in touch at all times with parents, each other, and the social media platforms that have begun to supplant real-life circles of friends. Even many younger children have their own devices. School classrooms are now full-blown digital experiences with computers and software beginning to replace teachers as the preferred method of education. For the moment, most school kids still have pencils and notebooks, but increasingly their work is completed on iPads and laptops.
1: How is this deep immersion into technology affecting our children, and how is it impacting their emotional health, their interpersonal relations, and overall well-being? That growing concern among parents, educators, sociologists, scientific researchers, medical doctors, and legal experts was the spark for a groundbreaking new document which is now circulating around the world, the International Declaration on the Human Rights of Children in the Digital Age. The declaration is built on the foundation of the 1959 United Nations Declaration on the Rights of the Child. The new declaration expands on that notion, setting out three specific rights which all children around the world must have in this new digital age. The right to be free from addictive platforms and apps. The right to be free from hazardous electronic product radiation. And the right to be free from commercial exploitation.
2: The protection of children is already a part of international customary law. The basis for international law are the decisions of the international court, international treaties and conventions, and what is called customary law, which is an independent basis for the creation of legal norms. You can sue in the United States under U.S. law, implementing and incorporating international custom, as you can in other countries, it's self-executing. And so it seemed to me there was a legal principle here that was important.
0: That's Julian Gresser, lawyer, philosopher, inventor, twice Mitsubishi visiting professor at the Harvard Law School, and a visiting professor at MIT's program on science, technology, and society. He's the primary author of the International Declaration on the Human Rights of Children in the Digital Age. Early in his career, Julian had discovered environmental law and was immediately drawn to its ability to positively impact people's lives. In particular, Julian was drawn to the idea of making polluters pay for the damage they had caused. As a young man, he worked as an environmental lawyer in Japan, helping to formulate the way in which polluters in Japan had to pay for their emissions, and then was invited to teach at Harvard Law School.
2: I then got picked up after my work in Japan by uh, Professor Jerome Cohn at Harvard Law School. And I taught a course with two Japanese law professors of environmental law. And we looked really hard at the uh, issue of toxic torts, particularly these pollution-related injuries of Minamata disease, mercury, cadmium, all the problems of air pollution, and the innovative approach the Japanese took to uh, creating a fund based on an emission charge. Uh, that the polluters had to pay that was calculated by the damages that they caused. And then one of the students had the bright idea, which was developed in the course, to introduce the same idea in the United States, and that became the Superfund legislation. So this whole issue of releasing a dangerous substance on the helpless public is something that I had this track record of having basically developed the evidentiary legal basis under Japanese law for U.S. law in that area, so it was natural for me to see the connection and how many of the critical issues that are faced today were addressed in these earlier cases 50 years ago uh, in Japan. And so the Polluter Pays Principle was articulated by the OECD in 1972. That's the Organization for
0: Economic Cooperation and Development, an intergovernmental organization with 38 member countries founded in 1961.
2: With a very strong economic theoretical basis that these are so-called externalities that the companies, in order to extract profits, are being subsidized by not having to pay these externalized costs they're off balance sheet Uh, and so the polluter pays principle was designed to say it is inefficient for these costs to be not borne by the companies causing them
0: inefficient and unfair Consumers who are negatively impacted by some sort of environmental pollution have a steep uphill climb ahead of them in court as they seek to prove that it was the actions of the polluter which caused their problem. With so many toxins in our lives, positively teasing out the one that is responsible for a given outcome is extremely difficult, even when the pollution caused by the company is known to cause human harm. And that's what allows polluting companies to keep polluting and it's where public interest law comes into play.
2: It's now become really an international movement, and we really understand where some of these pivotal leverage points are from a legal point of view, which is part of the art of public interest law, which is to take large issues, but find in a legal sense, where can we do massive amounts of good with sort of artful, very well-focused legal intervention. And this area is, I think, ripe for it. And within it, the protection of children is an area that really deserves careful attention, which was what uh, motivated me to uh, conceive of this international declaration for the protection of children in a digital age. And it turns out that children as as we know, are enormously vulnerable. So that was the first motivation. And then it seemed to me, given the data that that actually you guys have developed with the Tech Safe Schools Project and the scientists and pediatricians and others that you brought into that project have exposed me to understanding the special vulnerability for children. And as an international lawyer, it was clear to me that there was a norm what we call an international law custom, that just needed to be articulated that probably was universally held. Namely, that children deserve, who are defenseless, must be protected and that nobody was speaking out on an international legal area about the protection of children, particularly in the digital age.
0: For several years, Attorney Julian Gresser has been part of a growing movement among legal and health experts to address the issue of microwave radiation from electronic devices and its impact on the human body. A study by the National Institutes of Health had determined that exposure to cell phone radiation could increase the risk of cancer. And the FCC, which had sought comments on its old human exposure guidelines, had been sued by 2 nonprofit organizations, the Environmental Health Trust and Children's Health Defense. The court agreed with the plaintiffs and excoriated the FCC for its arbitrary and capricious decision to keep its old guidelines in place and failing to give proper consideration to the emerging science. This was part of the backdrop to the development of the declaration.
2: We do have very substantial data, as you know, studies all over the world, but somehow or other because this pollutant is less visible than lead, or uh, mercury or cadmium. And then the industry is vastly more powerful than those companies. I mean, this is the telecom industry as deeply embedded in industrial infrastructure of the United States. We all worked together and had our initial focus on children being exposed to non-ionizing radiation from digital devices, electronic products, including cell towers, which are being placed. Macro towers right in children's playgrounds or on the top of schools, but also cell phones and smart meters and so forth. All these, the internet of things. That seemed to be a clear nexus that deserved attention in an international declaration for the protection of children. And it was clear to me that this declaration could set up legal actions that could be taken in the benefits of one advance and one jurisdiction could be rapidly applied since the same kinds of technical, scientific, medical, legal issues were common across national boundaries, which is the same insight I had about the Stockholm conference. Uh, but then something quite interesting has happened. And that is that a number of the participants who we work with of our team suggested that screen time addiction should be included.
0: When whistleblower Frances Hogan pulled back the curtain on Facebook in the fall of 2021, the thousands of pages of internal documents she released showed that the social media giant knew exactly what it was doing. The Facebook executives knew its platforms could be negatively impacting youth, but they were doing nothing to change things.
1: With millions of American kids accessing social media every day, parents, and their lawyers, were paying close attention. So, too, were the lawyers working on the commercial exploitation of children and the use of their private data for commercial gain. These two groups of legal experts joined others, like Julian Gresser, who had been alerted to the potential harm caused by exposure to the radiation emitted by all wireless devices. The trifecta of these legal issues is the basis of the International Declaration.
2: This declaration can be the tip of the spear, and the concept of enabling lawyers and communities all over the world, now it's gotten an, an enormous boost. And it's important to understand also that the companies are defending under the pornography laws. They're defending their actions under something called the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which gave them immunity for third parties that would use social media platforms, but this has nothing to do with third parties. This is about an intentional business algorithm to addict particularly children for their economic financial gain. Uh, The First Amendment has nothing to do, they're using it to, to say they have First Amendment rights to do it. This is really at its essence, a product liability case. Very similar. And by the way, the issue of these four major settlements with tobacco, where is really analogous to a drug that's being intentionally crafted and designed to have addictive effects, which is what happened with tobacco. So we've all talked about, you know, how these EMF cases are the next generation after tobacco and asbestos. Well, there's a very tight coupling of screen time addiction with the earlier tobacco cases.
0: Julian Gresser is fond of big ideas, of thinking outside the box, imagining what the possibilities might be. He likes to travel down the hypothetical road, playing out the scenarios to see what might happen. It's the way he thinks about public interest law.
2: Part of the art of public interest law, at least as I've tried to develop it, involves a a new way of thinking. Uh, just as Einstein said, as a society we become highly vertically siloed. And uh, of course, there's some very good aspects of going deeply. You know, I was told by my friend Jerry Cohn that Dean Griswold at the Harvard Law School used to have the favorite saying: "At the Harvard Law School, we sharpen the mind by narrowing it." What he meant by that, I think, was, you know, lawyers are taught to parse issues very precisely and carefully, but at a sacrifice of being able to see broadly, seeing connections. And there's some very interesting, what I call intertidal connections here. We began with EMF exposure, but that's taken us to screen time addiction. Well, screen time addiction, addicting children, is intimately tied with what the members of Congress are concerned about, which is surveillance. Surveillance and control. If you have people who are helpless and addicted, they're much more easily surveyed and controlled. But somehow or other, some members of Congress were very concerned about, you know, invasion of privacy of, say, children, but that's somehow separated from addiction. The critical issues of causation continue, whether it be Love Canal, lead poisoning in water, Flint, Michigan, uh, Aaron Brockovich. All these issues continue to come up. Why are we placing corporate profit above the protection of children? That just seemed to me a great dissonance and disconnect.
0: Julian Gresser, lawyer, philosopher, inventor, former professor at Harvard Law School and MIT's program on science, technology, and society, and primary author of the International Declaration on the Human Rights of Children in the Digital Age. You can learn more about the Declaration at the project website, thechildrensdeclaration.org. That's all one word, thechildrensdeclaration.org. We hope you'll share it with any medical, legal, or scientific experts you know. Again, the website, www.thechildren'sdeclaration.org. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest, attorney Julian Gresser, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with
2: another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.